What if you could hang out with seriously talented copywriters and other experts, ask them about their successes and failures, their work processes and their habits, then steal an idea or two to inspire your own work. That's what Rob and I do every week at the Copywriter Club podcast. You're invited to join the club for episode 102 as we chat with professional community builder Harmony Eichstead about what it takes to create strong communities, how to work a room online and off, what she does to land and rock a speaking gig, and writing poetry good enough to win a poetry slam. Harmony. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we're excited that you're here so we can talk about something that we really haven't covered on this podcast, um, all about community development, community engagement, and relationships. So why don't we kick it off with your story? How did you end up as a relationship and community expert? Yeah, it's such a good question. And I think for many of us, we can sort of start the story at a lot of different places. So the more deeply I get into my work, the more I can see sort of tendrils from even my childhood of like, oh, I've you know always been very fascinated about connecting people. So I think there's some thread that was maybe there from a young age, but how it sort of crystallized for me was actually I started out as a dating coach, which I think is now I think is very funny. <laughs> I spent a few years working with people on writing dating profiles, on how to flirt and think about like developing relationships. And that sort of morphed into this current career for a few different reasons. One is that I got diagnosed with thyroid cancer when I was 29. And that was not what I was planning to do with my 29th year on the planet. I had other items on my agenda, but it sort of threw a monkey wrench in things. And as is the case for lots of us, when we have sort of a big surprising life change, it forces us to look at our priorities, what we care about and who we really are. And part of what emerged for me in that process was that I noticed I was really gathering all these people around me and that seemed very obvious and normal in that kind of time, but I started to see other people going through difficult circumstances alone. And I realized that there was some combination of having already built a really strong community and then knowing what to do with it. And I started to reflect back on the dating coaching that I was doing. And so much of that was actually teaching people how to build communities and how to have a lot of rich relationships, many of which or some of which would turn romantic, but not all of them because you have a lot of friends, easier to meet someone to date. So I started to really refine like, oh, what I care about is actually just teaching people about connecting. And I want everyone to have the kind of network and support that can uplift you so that when life you know, takes a left turn, it's there. And it became just like a really personal passion, um, which then turned into this career path, which has been just like really a fun adventure to see that unfold that way. Okay, so I have a whole bunch of questions that kind of flow out of your story. But I want to go back to, you know, kind of to the beginning where you are a dating coach, teaching people how to flirt and connect. What's involved in that? Like, I mean, I think about myself and I have a relationship, so I'm not really interested in learning how to flirt, you know, for romantic purposes, but obviously connecting with people and getting people interested in you, like, how do you teach that? Right. <laughs> I think that's a great question. And actually, like a lot of flirting that you might do with like a romantic intention is also like if you take the 
romance part out is really great for just connecting with people. So giving someone a lot of eye contact and being really curious about their life and what they're interested in is very attractive and engaging, whether you want to date somebody or you're just having a conversation with a colleague. So thinking about like those elements of like what makes us just feel really good and want to get to know somebody better. And that's the whole point of flirting, really. It's like, hmm, this feels nice and I might want to have another conversation with this person. So is the key to growing our businesses to flirt more? Do Robin and I need to start <laughs> flirting more? I mean, I, I don't know if it's the key, but especially if you're interested in building more relationships, I think it's like a pretty good tactic. So I want to hear more about when you had cancer at age 29, how did your community help you? Can you provide some specific examples? Yeah. So I actually had like teams of folks. So I had like a finance captain who's sort of in charge of helping manage like fundraising because I couldn't work for part of that time. And I had several people who were like sort of coaching me around stuff like grappling with my mortality and thinking about like, you know, what that meant and who I was going to be in the face of this like big change. And I had folks sort of like organized teams so that I always had a person with me at every doctor's appointment. And it was really funny, like being a sort of young adult with cancer is really different than how most people experience it. It's usually either pediatric cancer or folks who are older. So you tend to either have a spouse or children or parents there as a sort of consistent support figure but I was divorced. I you know, wasn't living near my parents, but I had this great community. So I had like a rotating band of like friends. My doctors kind of never knew who was going to show up <laughs> with me. There was always some person there. And I like lived with some friends for a little while. So it was really like a wide range of ways that people showed up, which I think is actually like a real key for community. So I sort of think of it like stone soup or like I might bring a carrot and you have a potato and somebody else has celery and you all just pitch in the thing that you have. And if you have enough folks who can do that, you end up with this really rich result and nobody's having to really extend past what they're able to offer. So before we jump into the business applications of this kind of a thing, you know, a lot of copywriters, myself included, are a little bit introverted. And so connecting with people, especially in real life, is difficult. What are some of those first steps that we need to take in order to build communities around ourselves like what you're talking about? Yeah, I love this question. I actually do a lot of work with introverts and I've gotten like a little obsessed with thinking about introverts as community builders. And I actually think in some ways, introverts can be even better community builders than extroverts because Hmm. I know it's like, ooh, plot twist. (laughs) The reason being that obviously I'm painting with a broad brush, but that often for introverts, each relationship they build takes much more energy. And so they tend to be much more invested and hold the relationships as really precious. And, you know, if it's very easy to make lots of relationships and everyone's a new friend, then it can be, you might forget or be a little more flippant about the relationship. So I think that like, okay, this relationship was painstakingly won and I'm not going to lose it because I'm not doing that work again, actually can be like a great asset for community building. But then obviously there is like, if you're building a big community, a lot of relationships so that that can be taxing um, if you're someone that doesn't draw your energy from that. So I think some, some tips is like one, don't have to be extroverted. So like not trying to be something that you're not. 
a few really quality deep relationships that last are better than a bunch of superficial relationships. And you don't personally have to build every relationship. So you can build a small group of folks and then they can bring their friends. And in a like really good community, that's how it should be is that people are like, Hey, this thing's really cool. You should come along with me. And you don't have to hold every relationship as the like primary person who's connected to them. So I think those are probably the biggest things I would say. What are some common misconceptions around building a community? I mean, I think, again, as like introverts, we think, okay, well, I can't do it because I'm not like so-and-so or I'm not that type of leader. What have you heard from your clients? Well, I think one common misconception is that one person can just make a community. That's not how people work, unfortunately, <laughs> much much to my dismay. <laughs> you can't just make people come together and connect. So I think what you can do is create a container and see if community will form inside of that. So yeah, you can't make community happen. I also think we often right now really undervalue the importance of face-to-face connections. I think there's definitely a place for online work and relationships are just so deep when you can meet in person. So any way that you can do that, I think is really, really helpful. Those are, I think are the biggest misconceptions. So, yeah, I want to follow up on that. So when you talk about, you know, putting out a container to, you know, have a place where this community can grow, what does that look like? Are you talking about like, hey, I'm going to set up a Facebook group or I'm going to set up a forum somewhere online and invite people? Or is there more to it that goes into that? That is a great question. Well, one of the things that I'm thinking about is there's a co-working space here in Seattle that my business partner and I just hosted an event at last night called Office Nomads. And one of their core values is actually we don't build community. We just like create the space in which community can thrive. And we really resonated with that. So in that case, it's a physical location, but it's not just a building. They didn't just rent a building and be like, well, I hope people show up. They thought about their core values. They thought about how would they decorate the space, furnish the space to support the values of the kind of people they want to attract. They you know, thought about their copy, like how do we communicate who we are, who we're hoping to come together And then they put all of that out into the world. So I think all of that is the container. And that's one place where copywriting is so crucial is like really getting clear, like who are the people you're hoping will come to whatever that container is. So whether that, you know, your Facebook group or your, you know, retreat or your co-working space and being able to speak in a way that like what happened with us when we walked in the space, we read these, we were like, oh, these are our people. We want to be here. We want to connect more. And then you know, we became members and now we're like in the Slack group and hosting events and getting sort of like deeper into the relationships of the people because they did such a good job of sort of specifying who's this for and what can you do here? Yeah. And this is so clear to me because I work with clients who build communities. So I see the importance of the copy with that. And then Rob and I run a community as well. So I get this and it's really interesting to me, but I could also see where there could be some copywriters who aren't necessarily running a community right now and don't work with those clients. What would you say to them as far as how they market themselves and how the role community plays in marketing today, especially with social media? Well, I think there's two big places. Like one is like really building your own community of colleagues, which I think is part of what's so exciting about this podcast and what, um, what you all are doing is like having that sort of internal community of people who like really know what it's like to be a copywriter. (laughs) And you can have those real conversations with ask questions, 
connect, have someone say like, oh yeah, I know exactly what you're going through and refer people to each other because a lot of building a business is about not trying to do that alone, but building this like collaborative network. So that's one place where I think community building is just really powerful for anyone. And then for copywriters sort of externally or like with your clients, even if someone's not really specifically out to build a community, I think those principles can really shape how you write copy. So you all probably know this better than I do, but you know, some copy is really designed to inspire like fear, scarcity, competition, not being good enough, right? Okay. If you buy our product, then you'll be lovable. Then you'll belong. Then you'll feel good enough. So that's one way. Lots of people use that. It can be effective in selling things, but it creates a lot of isolation and disconnection. So this other way of creating copy for your clients can be like, hey, there's this awesome thing happening and you can be a part of it. We want you. Like you belong here. Even if there's not like a tangible place to connect, to just say like, raise your hand if you're one of us. Raise your hand if you believe in these things. And that is a different framework, I think, for inviting people into whatever it is that you're selling, even if there's not like a really specific way to connect on the other side of that. Interesting. I think one of the things that we talk a lot about within our community is that a great place to connect with potential clients is within other communities, you know, where your clients would hang out. And so as far as, you know, copywriters who maybe don't want to start a community and run their own thing, but they need to be able to connect with people within a community, what kind of advice do you have for them in finding and joining and connecting with people within the community that they don't necessarily run on their own? That's a great question. Well, and I actually think copywriters are probably better poised than a lot of people to do this work because so much of like writing good copy is like being curious about your client's market and asking questions. And those are all the same things that would have you build good relationships. So I think you can sort of like draw on that skill set. And I would say first is like find communities that you actually like and want to be a part of, not just that you think there might be clients. Because I just don't think there's any way you can fake liking something or liking someone. (laughs) It's not the same as when you're really engaged. So I would think about where are communities that are fun for you to be, you really enjoy it, and there's like potential customers, or the people in that community, no potential customers, because we love to refer people. We love to say like, oh, I've got someone for you. Like, let me give you their name. And then form relationships without an agenda. So if you go into it, like just trying to make a bunch of sales, everyone will smell that on you. But if you go in, like being interested to connect with people that are exciting to you, then I think it's inevitable that people say like, oh, what do you do? And who do you work with? And that will organically lead to connections. So I'm wondering, have you noticed an increase in the need to be a part of a community even more recently? I mean, have you noticed any studies or have you just felt it in your own work where just thinking back to what you're saying about copy and how maybe agitating the pain may be less effective than creating the desire to be part of something bigger than yourself and to be part of a community? I wonder if that's always the same and dependent on the client or if there is this really big need for that right now. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, as human beings, we have always like part of what fundamentally makes us human is that we are tribal creatures and we like to be in connection with each other. And in the last like hundred years, stuff has really changed. So, you know, we can buy things online instead of walk down to a little local market where we know the one person who sells the thing. 
And uh, there's a huge decrease in participation in religious communities, which for a lot of folks was a place where they every week met the same people and connected with them. And then we created suburbs where we're like really far away from our jobs and we're driving, you know, from these little boxes in a little box car to a little box office. So there's all these ways in which we've sort of like redesigned our society to decrease connection. So I think that plus the rise of technology where we can connect virtually, but we're not getting as much in-person connection has created this really interesting situation where we're feeling this gap and you kind of see it across most demographics of people and, you know, industries and cities. There's like a longing for connection and for relationships, which I think is part of where businesses, especially when they have a real like mission and like ethical (laughs) sort of drive behind it can actually fill this need and create this container and create this place for connection. And there's a hunger for it because of all these places we're not connecting that we used to connect. So I think the instinct has always been there, but I think there's a particular need that's happening now um, that's new. And if you sort of approach it right, it can be a really powerful way to serve people in addition to whatever else you're serving people with. Yeah. And it seems like at the same time that you've got that need growing, you know, when we talk about how we are tribal in some of the things that we do, you know, there are things going on in the political culture where both sides are are maybe moving away from the center a little bit. And then we see those people clash in some communities. I, we've seen it in our group a little bit, seen it in other groups online as well. How do you deal with those kinds of collisions where you want to foster, you know, this communication, we want to create relationships, but at the same time, some people hold very deeply held beliefs. And a Facebook group is probably not the place where you start changing, you know, beliefs, at least not in a big way. Do you have advice for people like us who have a community as far as fostering better relationships between opposing groups? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's one of the ways in which we haven't quite figured out what we're doing with social media yet. Like we sort of got this like technology, but it's like, you know, giving a jet airplane to a two-year-old. Like we don't really know what we're doing. (laughs) It's a great idea. They're going to get somewhere. (laughs) Right, right. But I think there are a few things we're starting to learn. So one is having really clear guidelines and codes of conduct are super awesome because then you can enforce them in a way that's not personal. It's not just you arbitrarily deciding you don't like a comment. Like, look, we have this rule. There's no name calling. Or, And you know, not every community should have the same rules. So we don't have any snarky comments. That's not allowed in this community. Maybe in other community, that's appropriate to the tone, to the flavor, to what you want to create. But really getting clear what are the kinds of ways we want people to show up and don't want people to show up and what will happen if they violate these. So is there a warning? Is there like a public response to their comments? Are they going to get banned? You know, can they just, there's now Facebook has an option where you can mute people for some certain periods of time so they can be in the group, but not comment. So there's some options like that. And it's really worth taking some time to like lay those out, ideally before you launch the community, but at any point is better than never. And then to enforce them. And then people start to learn that they can count on this container to be a place where a certain standard of communication will exist. And that creates some safety. And then people can lean in a little bit more to being vulnerable with each other because they know where the edges are. 
then obviously there's still going to be like tension or differences of opinion and stuff to work through. So I think like having some other steps that aren't just about moderating or banning, but like help reconcile. And of course, everyone's got to decide how much bandwidth they have for this because you could spend literally your entire life moderating Facebook comments. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Not, not exactly how we so, our lives. Yeah. Right. 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 Just like I, maybe I should have added in the misconception that like communities don't take a lot of work because they absolutely do. But there are communities where it's worth doing things like co-facilitating a private phone call between two members who are having tension so that they can actually like be in real time dialogue in a private space, get to know each other a little bit better and see if there's some resolution that can get created there. That's not appropriate for every Facebook community or for every other kind of community. But I am one of the community managers for a listserv of folks that do political work that crosses over with technology and all kinds of stuff can come up in that group, but there's also a really deep shared commitment. So that's one of the options that we have on the table is if the listserv sort of there's some tension that will be available to help facilitate private healing conversations so that the community can deepen our connection with each other. Because our community deals with copywriting and language, you know, and so many things ranging from freedom of speech to the meaning of words. I mean, there's just so much of what we deal with on a daily basis that's politically charged. We want to facilitate a group that doesn't look like everybody else, right? Like we don't want an only conservative group or an only liberal group or a group of only women or only men. Like I think that there's so much value in the clash of ideas and comments, but at the same time, balancing that so that it stays, you know, relatively friendly, you know, non-accusatory, negative. And I mean, you know, we've, we've definitely had it happen in our group and we've struggled with it. And it's something, it's a bit of a work in progress. Maybe there's not a perfect way to do it, but it is not easy. <laughs> right. Well, anytime there are humans involved, <laughs> I think it's, yeah, it's like, exactly. it can get messy. So that's just part of it. I mean, it's part of the pain and also part of the joy of community work is like, it's real people. It's not a dress rehearsal ever, right? We're like actually dealing with real humans. And that's where I think for you all having like really clear guidelines and codes of conduct is going to serve you. It's like what's allowed, what's not allowed in this community in order to serve this purpose and this mission that is clearly really important to you. Can you share an example? Maybe this is a self-serving question, but of <laughs> the private call and how you reconcile differences and what that call looks like, because I think that is a great idea. Yeah. Well, there's some really great models around restorative justice. So I would say for folks who are interested in that, like that's a great model. I think you can also draw from things like nonviolent communication. And there's other tools that sort of lend themselves towards having like conflict resolution um, moments. But a big part of it is when you are like with a person. So I mean, a video call is really great when you see their face we tend to be a little softer. We say things differently than when we are typing a comment or you know, a phone call or even face-to-face -face in real life. So that piece of it just by itself is often a de-escalator because we're like, oh, right, hello, other human, <laughs> not just a computer screen. And then holding space for the humanity that's there for each person. And I mean, this is the trick when you can pull it off is like holding space for the like real precious, vulnerable humanity and holding clear to the values and standards of the community that you're building. 
And if you can kind of marry those two, then I think you can really create a space where folks show up and are willing to like learn and listen and come together. Not everyone will be interested in doing that for sure, but if folks are willing to, it it can be really awesome. So it seems like we can safely say that copywriters are business owners and business owners are community leaders because whether it's two people in your community or two million, you have a tribe when you have a business. Is that safe to say? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I think everyone is a community leader in some way, right? I mean, we're all connecting with people, even if it's like a very small group or just our family, right? That Everyone has that potential to, to be a community leader. So what can we do to be even better at that? When we have that moment where we're like, oh, I am a community leader or, you know, leading my family, whatever role that is, what are some ways that we can improve or anything that you've tested yourself? Well, for all of us as entrepreneurs, as business leaders and community leaders, doing our own work is so powerful. So that can look like a lot of different things. But, you know, for me, taking time for meditation, have like working with a therapist or doing like self-development training, like really taking time in your life to do your own work is so powerful because, you know, gosh, when you are in front of a room or talking to clients or running a community, whatever is unresolved for you will come up in those <laughs> moments, <laughs> guaranteed. So the more like facility that I have around like, oh, I'm in front of a room and I noticed that I like said something embarrassing and I like disconnect from the room instead of being present, then that like, you know, makes me be more like ego driven or more trying to perform or want approval or want to hide or whatever the reaction is. So the more I can notice that, the more I can be like, okay, thanks brain, but actually I'm going to come back to this moment now, then I can actually just show up and be of service. So I would say that's probably the biggest thing is like, we've all got stuff we could work through. And the more of that you work through, the more you can serve people and be with what's happening and not with whatever you're reacting to. And then along with that, to try to just have a sense of humor with yourself because man, people are weird and wonderful and stubborn and complicated. And like I like sometimes joke that community is the worst. And the only thing worse than community is not having community. <laughs> right. Yeah, totally. I totally agree. There's so many people in our community that I can think of that I love so many things about them. And then there's this weird quirk and, you know, it's that, but it's that one thing that, you know, everybody bumps up against and, you know, it's, it's hard to deal with. So, but we're all human and life works a lot better if we're forgiving and understanding and cutting slack, even if maybe slack isn't deserved or, you know, if somebody believe something reprehensible. And it's just an interesting mix when you get thousands of people together. So are there differences with how we should be interacting with our community in person versus online? Are there things that we need to be doing when you're in front of a room as opposed to when you're you know, posting a, a comment into social media? Yeah. Well, when you're with people, you get a lot more feedback, right? So you can see their facial expressions and hear noises and they're going to laugh or you know, clap or not make any noise. So you're getting this really direct feedback in a way that we're not getting online. And I don't know what the exact study is, but I mean, there's something that's like, you know, 90% of communication is nonverbal. So we're really eliminating a lot of that when we're dealing with text. And so I think being sensitive to the limitations of the media that you're working with is great. So, you know, I definitely have been guilty of like assuming somebody would get something was a joke when actually it just landed as mean 
And I'm like, no, no, because remember that time? Oh. <laughs> yeah, I've been there a yeah, hundred times. Yeah. Like defaulting to like maybe being a little less sarcastic or a little less cryptic online. But it, there's also advantages to online communication, which is that you can like take a minute before you respond. You can edit your response. So taking advantage of that because you can't be like, mm, this thing I just typed out of my mouth, I'd like to take it back and edit it. You know, that's not how that works in a real conversation. So I think that's the biggest thing is just noticing like, what are the limitations and what are the advantages of these media? And how can I like really be responsible for those in the way that I'm communicating? I want to go back to flirting. I'm kind of stuck on the flirting part of this conversation. <laughs> so especially with networking events, let's start there. This is a two-parter question. So okay. I'm going to hog the mic for a little bit. So when you go to work a room at a networking event, what tips can you offer copywriters to just like really feel more confident and comfortable and build some good relationships with potential clients, maybe fellow copywriters who you know you could partner with? Because you know so many of us just feel really awkward in a room full of people we don't know. Yeah, that's awesome. So I had a job for a while where I was the evangelist of a software company that makes community building software. And what that job entailed was basically I went to like a conference or some big event every weekend and networked my butt off. So I have worked a lot of rooms. I started to like forget people's names. <laughs> it was a little nutty, but it was really powerful as a learning experience. And I think there's a few things like one, before you go to the event, actually think about like, why are you going and who are you hoping to connect with? So you're not just sort of like throwing yourself at this group of people and hoping something happens, but you have some like plan or some idea of like, here's what success would look like. I'd like to connect with one potential client or, you know, sometimes it's like, I just want to have one conversation where I don't feel awkward. <laughs> So that's fine. If you got to start there, that's wonderful. So having some sense of like why you're going and what you're hoping to get out of it, I think is really useful. And then thinking about like that way that can kind of shape how you go through the events. You're like, oh, I'm in this conversation with someone and I don't think that they're a potential client. I'm not really feeling very engaged. Oh, I can like move on. I can say like, hey, it's been really great to meet you. Like I want to connect with some more people. Like, thanks so much. Like, have a nice night. <laughs> And meet some other folks. Um, also, for me, I have come to find that if I make one or two really good connections, that that is a success. So I don't try to give my business card to every person in the room. That is exhausting and feels, even if you're an extrovert, and can feel very sort of superficial. So have one or two really good connections. And if you are an introvert, you're feeling a little shy and overwhelmed, the like, best advice I could give is to find the person who seems to kind of know everybody and who is extroverted. Often that is me <laughs> in the room. <laughs> and just like seriously go up to them and be like, hey, I'm a little shy or I don't know anybody. Can I kind of like be your sidekick? And like, will you help me connect with people? And like that question, if somebody asked me that, I would be like, come with me, kid. Like, I'm going to show you the world. <laughs> it's like such a sweet question. And if for folks who are very extroverted and love to connect with people, it's like Christmas. Like, you want me to introduce you to people? So use that and like, just let them help you with that. So that's probably like my favorite piece of advice for introverts. And then like, again, as copywriters, I think you have this great skill set, like ask questions, like you're interviewing people in the community of a client you're working with, get to know them, 
be curious and you'll find that people tend to think you're really interesting when they talk a lot about themselves. <laughs> right. No, that's great advice. I feel like I want to go to networking events yeah. with you and be your sidekick. Yeah, come on. It'll be awesome. <laughs> so the follow-up question is, how can copywriters build deeper connections with, again, potential clients or maybe even fellow copywriters? Because we get so many leads from fellow copywriters. And how can we do that online? So exclude the in-person networking event in a way that feels genuine because everyone's on guard too. It's like you're on guard with your email. You're questioning what people's motives are when they're reaching out to you want to get on a call and pick your brain. So how do we build those connections so that it feels good and there is some value in it? Like it could actually help you down the line. I think that can be somewhat personal to like, what is a way that you really like to connect that will fill you up as a person so that it's not like a slog. So if like, for example, I really like to connect like in real time. So I might be like, Hey, anybody want to have like a co brainstorming session you know, where we just all hop on a Zoom call and bring like the places we're stuck on writing copy for our clients or the places we're stuck in building our business. And let's just like share with each other. And I'll just be like, anyone can come, invite your friends. I'll just post it in a group. And that's a way where I'm not like selling myself, but I am providing value for the community and providing value for myself. That might not be interesting for somebody else to do that. They're like, that sounds terrible. (laughs) I don't want to do that. But they could think about like, what's a way you can be of service and nurture yourself um, that lets you connect with other folks. And that's probably the best way because then worst case scenario, you get something out of it, but you start to be known as someone who has something to offer. You're not just out for what you can get. You're clearly an expert if you have something to offer, right? So it sort of positions you well. And it feels very no pressure, but does let people know like who you are and what you're about. Yeah, that's great. So I know that you've worked with clients on in-person events. I mean, really big events. And maybe you can share some specifics, whatever you're comfortable sharing. But what do we need to think about as, you know, maybe we're planning our own events. Maybe it's just a little retreat or maybe it's a workshop or maybe it is a bigger event how do you make it successful and build, you know, grow a community rather than potentially not doing anything or even setting you back a couple of steps? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, there's obviously like tons of little pieces that can make an event really great or make it sort of not as wonderful. So I think there's there's like thousands of tiny things, but a few bigger things. I actually think my number one piece of advice for when you're like at the event producing it is don't run. Even when the tech is broken, even when like something has gone wrong and it feels like the whole day or, you know, because there's always going to be something just so you know, there will always be something, but don't run because then you sort of communicate that there's an emergency and it puts this tension in the mm. space. So it seems sort of like funny, but it's one of the things that really tipped the scales for me in the events I do. So it's like, oh, the tech isn't working. I'm like, okay, I'm going to walk over to the stage, even though inside I'm going, ah, <laughs> <laughs> Adam to be like, great, we're going to figure it out. And when you as the facilitator are communicating that like, okay, well, it's cool. Maybe we won't have slides for this. Like I'm going to draw stick figures of your slides on the whiteboard while you talk, (laughs) or we'll pass out handouts later that have copies of the slides. And you just know that it will somehow work out. People will match you. So they'll be like, oh, great. Yeah, whatever. The tech didn't work, but the speakers were great. The people were great. The food was great, right? Like they just, they'll be fine. 
So no matter what happens, like if you can have your focus be taking care of people and not coming from like an emergency mode, even if it feels like there's an emergency happening, then I think that is probably the biggest thing. Obviously, if there's an actual emergency, you should run, but unless something's on fire. (laughs) Yeah. So that's the biggest thing. And then especially when you're dealing with really big events, you just can't do everything. And I mean, this is such a a hard one for me to learn because I want to just put my fingers in every little piece and take care of everybody. But as the main person organizing it, it's really important for me to do as little of the small work as possible so that I can be available for questions and to help organize and to facilitate. So like my business partner and I just had a big festival in a park here in Seattle, which was super fun. We had never thrown a festival before, but we had bands and vendors and all kinds of people. And I was like watching vendors set up their tents. And I really wanted to go help them because they're like my people and I love them. But if I went and did that, I couldn't like get pulled away for all the other questions that there were. So like resisting the urge and they were great. They helped each other. They didn't need me actually to do that work. They needed me to organize the big stuff. Yeah, that's such a good example. And I think it's easy, especially if you're running your own event to hide too, especially if you're not as comfortable in the spotlight to hide and get really busy in the weeds when really you should be meeting with people, chatting with people more so in the spotlight connecting because it's your event. Right. Good reminder. And I'm also wondering about activities that help build communities. So if you have any examples, not necessarily icebreakers, but it's always good to know, like, what have you actually seen work really well, again, an in-person event with a smaller group or with a big group that you can tell Mm -hmm. in the moment, you're like, wow, that just brought this whole room or all these people, 400 people (laughs) together. It's kind of magical. Yeah, that's so great. A couple of things. So one, when I'm thinking about like helping people feel comfortable and connect in events is I try to structure it so that there are ways of connecting where people have like solo time to reflect. They have a one-on-one partner, a small group, and then bigger group so that the extroverts get what's really comfortable for them and also some places to stretch. And the introverts get what's really comfortable for them and also some places to stretch. And they get to connect in different dynamics in the group. I try to structure it that way. And (laughs) one thing that this is a a little bit in the icebreaker category, but I, I think is like worth knowing, like it's okay to do stuff that's a little cheesy because when we have sort of like a little embarrassing thing that we all go through together, we feel bonded. Like how people bond as humans is like overcoming shared obstacles or shared trauma So sometimes I will like joke, like last year at Camp Good Life Project, which is one of the clients that I work with, I was running the volunteer team and during our meeting had everybody like introduce themselves and make silly animal noises. And, you know, it was like sort of a little embarrassing to do that. But I told them that we're doing it for a couple of reasons. One is because it helps you remember someone's name when they say like, my name is Harmony. And then right? I mean, that's it's like never <laughs> going to forget that. <laughs> but it also, awesome. um, <laughs> it also helps us connect if we overcome shared trauma together. So <laughs> we're all going to do this sort of traumatic thing. And then now we'll be eternally bonded. Okay, we're definitely going to do that at some point. And that's such a great reminder too, just for building relationships with your clients. I mean, it's different for every client relationship. Some like I get really close with clients. It may not make sense for everyone, but to have something maybe even slightly embarrassing or awkward as part of your 
onboarding process <laughs> to help the two of you bond, that makes a lot of sense even within the client relationship. So I love that idea. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So to shift gears a little bit, I want to ask about speaking gigs because I noticed, you know, you're speaking, you seem you know comfortable speaking, of course, but like, how did you get on that path? How did you land those speaking gigs? Because a lot of copywriters want to speak more. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so it's having gone to like lots of different conferences and events, I've seen a lot of the like behind the scenes of how speakers are picked. So for lots of events, they're curated. Um, and for lots of events, there's a submission process. So I think especially if you're interested in speaking, and you haven't really, like gotten into that a lot, looking for events where there's a speaker submission is really great. And then just like, you know, fill out a ton of them, and practice and get used to like, oh, what are the kinds of things they ask? And what kinds of things are being accepted? versus, you know, what I submitted. And you can start to learn, like, oh, here's how to write a compelling pitch for a workshop or for um, a speech that will get accepted. And especially as copywriters, I mean, this is great. This is like a golden moment <laughs> to like practice your, your copywriting about yourself. And then also like tell people you're looking for speaking gigs, because you might be surprised who is interested in having a guest speaker. And that might be in person or on a podcast because there are a growing number of folks who are hosting podcasts and who want to have different kinds of speakers on. So letting folks know that that's something you're available for and interested in and asking other people who are speaking like, hey, how did you get this gig? Like, can you tell me about that? I'm interested in speaking at something similar. And my experience has been like, if you sort of do that work and you're engaged, it's not difficult to find places to speak. Yeah, especially if you're looking where your clients are hanging out, you know, it show, you know, as opposed to marketing conferences, but uh, conferences that are focused on, you know, the kind of writing that we want to do there, there are lots of opportunities. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think, you know, people are really curious to hear from copywriters. Like they want to know, like, what are your best tricks? And what can I learn from you? And how do you, you know, work with you? So that's, that's a great point, a really good way to get yourself in front of your clients. So Harmony, I want to ask about poetry. You okay. have written a little bit. I think you've written a book of poetry, but you've won a couple of poetry slams. What does it take to write a poem or perform a poem good enough to win a poetry slam? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. So I was the first youth poetry slam champion in Austin a million and a half years ago, which was so much fun. And then I, I got to go on tour. I like sort of created a little tour thing with a friend and we made some books of poetry that we printed at Kinko's <laughs> back when that was a thing. <laughs> yeah, it was really great. So I think there's a few things. One is I have been writing poetry since I was 11. So I had a lot of help and support from teachers and you know, workshops that I did. And I was in creative writing club in high school. So practicing and getting feedback and editing and coaching is really helpful. And I also had a poetry teacher say, you should input as much as you output. So I think if you're interested in poetry, especially in poetry slams, like go to poetry slams, buy books and recordings of people doing it and listen to the stuff that's really resonating with you. What are the words and the topics and the flow and let that inspire the writing. And then you got to output, right? So like try stuff out. And most cities have open mics and slams that you can go and like get your butt on a stage and 
get judged. And it's so scary. And it's so awesome, too. And the community is very, very supportive of people who are willing to just like get up there and put themselves out there. And you'll get better that way. That sounds terrifying. <laughs> oh my God. It's so terrifying, especially because most stuff people write about is very personal. And so it can right. feel like what you're getting judged on is like your personal life experience. So it's like not for the faint of heart, but also like the fastest way to get better at your writing. For somebody who hasn't actually been to a poetry slam, you're probably imagining the scene from So I Married an Axe Murderer, where <laughs> Mike Myers is up there doing these poems or whatever, and they're funny. But yeah, poems are the last thing I want to share you know, with my audience. Right, right, right. Rob, we need to do it. I'm adding it to my bucket list and to your yeah. bucket list. You could just like start out by going to a poetry slam and being in the audience because they're actually really fun. They are usually about three minutes long, often memorized and very performative. So it's a little bit more like, I don't know, like poetry meets hip hop or something like. You should give us an example. Oh my God. Like just right now. <laughs> I do not have a poem prepared for, <laughs> for this. But they're really, really exciting and the energy tends to be very high. So they're fun events to go to and nothing like the, <laughs> the poems. And so I married an axe murderer. <laughs> Final question for you. What are you working on? What are you excited about right now? What are some upcoming projects that you can share with our community? I would say like the big thing I'm really excited about is that my business partner, Noe, and I have a company called Worth the Journey, where we work with heart-centered entrepreneurs. And we are just about to open up registration for our winter retreat, which is called Inward. And it's really sweet. We've got this um, this little like house uh, retreat center a couple hours outside of Seattle, where there's a chef who makes food custom to every person's specific dietary restrictions. It's incredible. So whatever kind of food that you like to eat, it's like, you know, fresh from the garden and homemade and super delicious. And then between meals, we spend two and a half days really diving into completing the year of 2018 and then visioning out and creating your path for 2019. And there's like yoga and time to like connect really deeply. And so it's very, very nurturing and heart centered and also helps set up your year for your business. So if you're interested in that, worththejourney.com slash inward. We've got a, a little waiting list and, and soon a registration page open. So I think that's my my current favorite project. I know it's like summer right now, but I'm like, oh, no, it's okay. You had us at food. Topic. Like, can you sold me on the food part? Yeah, yeah, so <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I'm, I'm not sure I'll go for the yoga. Yeah. The visioning thing might be a little weird, but I'm okay. totally there Perfect. for the food. The whole it's thing. Sign me up. Really All right. Thank you so much for <laughs> your time with us and sharing about community and relationships. This has been really helpful to me personally. So I'm sure it's helpful to our community. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm really excited about what you all are creating for copywriters. I think it's really, really special. Thanks, Harmony. You've been listening to the Copywriter Club podcast with Kira Hug and Rob Marsh. Music for the show is a clip from Gravity by Whitest Boy Alive, available in iTunes. If you like what you've heard, you can help us spread the word by subscribing in iTunes and by leaving a review. For show notes, a full transcript, and links to our free Facebook community, visit thecopywriterclub.com. We'll see you next episode.